0: Courage. Yes, above all things, courage. Welcome, everyone, to the July edition of the Impact, a Sustainable CT podcast, for your edification, your enlightenment, and your entertainment, too. I'm Jim Hunt, Communications Manager at Sustainable CT, so if you're looking for someone to blame for this podcast, well, you can blame me. But remember, this is never a one-way conversation. We always want to hear from you for our edification and enlightenment. Drop us a note, won't you, to info at sustainablect.org. The Impact is brought to you in part by the Community Foundation of Eastern Connecticut. That's right. The Community Foundation of Eastern Connecticut brings people together to work towards a healthy, thriving, and sustainable Eastern Connecticut, and we are oh so glad they do. Remember, Sustainable CT is independently funded. We don't receive support from any level of government or from a university, not even from a magical unicorn rainbow money tree, no, sir. But you can be a Sustainable CT sponsor. Find out how at SustainableCT.org. Today is old home week at The Impact, as we've invited three, yes, three alumni of the Sustainable CT Fellowship Program to join us to ask the where are they now question and find out how their participation in our fellowship program may or or may not have impacted their career paths, but also to get their perspective on some major issues of the day, because I got to say, they have all done pretty darn well since their respective fellowships with Sustainable CT, and I consider their opinions and perspectives worth hearing and sharing. For those of you out there who may not know, and there could be a few, The Sustainable CT Fellowship Program places highly qualified fellows across the state's councils of governments, that's COGS, to help cities and towns become registered, certified, or recertified with Sustainable CT during the summer. The COGS serve as Connecticut's regional planning organizations and truly as counties, both de facto and de jure. The fellows assist cities and towns within the various COG territories and assist on COG projects that align with Sustainable CT's goals. One of my favorite sustainability people, Chadwick Schroeder, is here with us today. As a junior and senior at the University of Connecticut, Chad was a Sustainable CT Fellow in 2019 and 2020. He graduated from UConn with a double major in political science and environmental studies. During his fellowship, he worked at the Western Connecticut Council of Governments in Sandy Hook. Chad has also ridden his bike all over Connecticut's forests, and he has a mighty fine collection of tattoos, so... Uh, he joined Sustainable CT as a full-time program assistant in 2021, and he was appointed by Mayor Gannam in Bridgeport to be that city's sustainability manager in March of 2022. Desiree Blanchard attended the University of Connecticut, too, where she earned a bachelor's degree in urban and community studies with a focus in political science. She was a Sustainable CT fellow during the summer of 2019, where she worked at the Naugatuck Valley Council of Governments in Waterbury. Desiree also studied abroad in Prague, the beautiful capital city of the Czech Republic, which is very cool. I think she was an intern and aide to the mayor of Waterbury, and in 2021, she was hired by Surprise, the Connecticut Valley Council of Governments, as communications and community engagement manager. Sweet, welcome, Desiree, and Hamza Ganapati. My goodness, Hamza, what haven't you done? Hamza graduated from the University of Connecticut in 2017 with a degree in chemistry and a minor in healthcare management. She received her master's from the Tufts Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy in 2022, where among so many other honors, she was selected as a John Robert Lewis Fellow for 2022-2023. Hamza has interned with the Nebraska Natural Resources Districts, worked as a data specialist at the Yukon Extension Farm to School Collaborative, served as a graduate teaching and research assistant at Tufts University, as a research intern with Resources for the Future in Washington, D.C., as an environmental fellow at the Yale School of Environment and is currently a policy fellow with the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition in Washington, D.C. And along the way, she managed to be a fellow with us in the summer of 2020, working at the Western Connecticut Council of Governments at Sandy Hook. And you know, I almost forgot, Hamza is also a valuable member of the Sustainable CT Board of Directors, which sort of makes her my boss. So there's that. Welcome, Hamza. Welcome to you all. Now that I've got all that out of the way, gee, it's good to see you all, and thank you for taking the time for this. We really do appreciate it. Hamza, let's begin with you, if you don't mind. Tell me a little bit about what you're doing, where you're at right now. Uh, How are things going in Washington, D.C. for you?
1: Yeah, they're going quite well, Jim. So I right now work in agriculture policy here in Washington, D.C. at the federal level. Uh, The biggest thing I think that's taking up most of our brains and our efforts right now is the 2023 farm bill. So for those who might not know, in agriculture policy, every five years, we write what's called a farm bill that governs all of food and farm system policies for the entire country for five years. So the last farm bill was written in 2018, which means right now in 2023, we have this really big opportunity to shift some of the existing programs that Uh, are governing our farm system, write new ones and, you know, create monumental changes to others, you know, really reform the systems and create what we want to see. So, that's been the biggest part of my work. And a lot of what I do for my organization involves uh, legislative tracking. So seeing what kinds of bills are getting introduced and what kind of impact they might have on agriculture, um, understanding what the what USDA and its, its surrounding agencies are doing related to all the food and farm programs that we care about, and also doing a lot of research work. So one of my biggest research projects right now is looking at data and equity with programs at USDA. So we're trying to understand and what kind of data sources are publicly available to understand where money goes who's benefiting from USda and seeing how we can understand that information and then use it for advocacy to make sure we're also creating
0: a more equitable food and farm system wow you've landed in it that's wonderful Chad how about yourself what are you where are you doing how are things going in bridgeport what are you doing now uh, you've been working with sustainability now in bridgeport for a little while how are things going
2: it's going great over here in Bridgeport. Um, so I'm the manager of the sustainability office. Uh, basically everything sustainability and climate resiliency related falls within the scope of our office, uh, from energy to agriculture and food policy, um, as well as climate resiliency to sea level rise and the impacts of climate change. It's going well. We have uh, a lot of work ahead of us, but we're we're getting underway. We have um, a greenhouse gas inventory nearing completion. First one that's been completed in the city in, I think, the past 15 years. Um, We also recently got funded from the state for a comprehensive vulnerability assessment for the city. So we're going to be overlaying all of our climate change impacts that are modeled out with social demographic data uh, to really give us a equitable and intentional approach to addressing resiliency within the city.
0: Desiree, how about yourself? How are things going in uh, Nogatuck Valley these days?
3: Going great. So I'm currently the communications and community engagement manager at the Nogatuck Valley Council of Governments, or NVCOG, and, um, you know, responsible for promoting our agency's projects, mission, and um, services to the public, to um, our various stakeholders. Um, And so, you know, it's really great, because we have a lot of exciting projects going on, we've been getting a lot of wins for the region. Um, So we're seeing, you know, federal funds coming in for some of the Brownfields projects. um, And that's the, you know, transforming these old industrial industrial sites into something new, redeveloping, cleaning those up. Um, We're seeing, you know, money come into the region for trail systems. So um, kind of promoting our greenway, which would be 44 miles throughout the region, our 19 communities. So really seeing a lot of exciting stuff happening here and um, great that I'm in a position that I'm able to communicate that to the public, but also to uh, get our communities involved and find opportunities to have them be vocal and a part of the decision making processes here.
0: Desiree, tell me why you got involved with Sustainable CT in the first place. What made you think that a fellowship would be a, a, a good fit for you here?
3: Yeah, so I was, um, you know, in in the process of my undergraduate studies and I was studying urban and community mm-hmm. studies and, and political science. And um, it just kind of seemed like a natural fit. I was very, at the time in um, love with the idea of being able to work with diverse communities. Here in Connecticut, all are, are 169 municipalities. No one is exactly the same. And I think that's um, something that's preached often. And so having the ability to work within a regional context and understand what local decisions looked like, what local operations looked like, but also what regional coordination looked like um, was very um Attractive to me, the appeal to me to be able to see, you know, when we talk about quality of life and improving quality of life for people, how can we do that? And what does that look like? What do those decisions look like on the inside? Um, what is the the access to the decision making process look like on the inside? And also, how are we able to do those things without depleting resources for the future? Like, how can we do this sustainably? So, it, it just seems like the perfect fit at the perfect time. And I think that, um, you know, it has definitely played a part into the passions that I currently have and still hold and, and the career fulfillment that um, that I aim to achieve.
0: Yeah. Were you able to, at the time when mm-hmm. you were doing your fellowship, did you have a sense that you were really factually involved on the ground with programs and you were being used in a way that felt like it made sense?
3: So I think that, um, you know, the year that I was a fellow was kind of a little bit at the beginning of the inception of the program. It wasn't the first year, but I think maybe it was the second year. It, it was just early on. And um, so, you know, the region that I got placed in, it was still introducing communities to what this looked like. And I think that um, the the most beneficial part was being able to help them understand that Sustainability is achievable and you know, you're given this menu or array of options of different um, actions that you can put into place. And so although you may not look like your neighbors community, um, there is still something that you can do and that can happen for you. And so I think that you know. In that sense, I was able to be utilized to, to have those starting up conversations. And it really feels great to to be at the beginning of the process and then to look back and see the the fellows who followed and hear their stories and their successes and how much they've been involved, um, because it is an involvement, really, and, and a great mark milestone to look at like, oh, you know, where did we start trying to explain to them, like, what is sustainable Connecticut? What is sustainability? How can your community be sustainable for you and its residents, um, and then jumping forward to now we have all these different communities who are not only registered, but um, who have achieved certification. So that's really great. Right.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, so what was, the, what was the most important project you worked on as a S- Sustainable CT fellow? And uh, did it have a lasting impression on what you're doing now?
1: This might be the easiest question you could ask me, Jim. The most important project by far was uh, a kind of presentation to elected officials, um, city officials that uh, the fellows and I put together that year called a young vision for future Connecticut communities. We were this was in 2020. So we were in the midst of global pandemic, a real racial reckoning across the United States. And the confluence of these two major happenings at the time, in addition to a, a growing climate crisis, a sustainability need, really inspired a lot of us to want to do more than just, you know, do what we were doing at our homes on our laptops, like Chad and I used to sit on teams and just work across the screen from each other. And all of a sudden, that didn't feel like enough. We were trying to put in sustainability, ideas, work policies with all the towns that we were working on working with. But there was more that we could do. And I have to give credit to one of our fellow fellows, Emily, who was really the the person who one day on our like mutual chat board just said, Hi, I'm frustrated, we need to do more. And Mm -hmm. it was really the Mm -hmm. genesis of this huge project that all of us put together. I think over the 20 or so of us that were in the fellowship that year, each of us took on a couple of topics that we cared about and could present about, and put together a vision for really what we saw as being a sustainable and equitable system that the state of Connecticut needed in order to keep young people who were concerned about the climate crisis and were concerned about their own futures to stay in the state and to invest in what the state's future looks like. And I remember the, you know, we talked about resilience and sustainability. This project exemplified every single part of that. I know the day we were supposed to present was a couple days after one of the most severe rainstorms that Connecticut had seen in a summer in years. And I think about half or more of us did not have power. Um, some of us were in our cars using a hotspot to get on and present for this. I remember I was having phone calls on the way to an office that had power so that I could present trying to coordinate things last minute. <laughs> and yeah. despite all of that, if you were attending that day, Jim, you could not have been able to say that this group of people who are going through one of the most challenging periods of life in the last five years put together this presentation in the way that it came together. Um, it was truly an honor to be a part of it. I hope it's continued to have an impact. I know that the city officials that we had that day were sending messages, private messages to fellows that they had worked with, messages to sustainable CT staff saying how impressed they were, how inspired they were. And the fact that uh, a ragtag group of young people between the ages of like 20 and 25 um, could put this together because of a really inspiring, difficult summer. Is something that I'll never forget.
0: That's great, uh, Chad. How about yourself, what uh, what brought you to Sustainable CT and, and kept you coming back? You were a fellow for two years, and then you worked. You worked as a uh, project assistant, which we're very thankful for. Uh, and then, you know, was there something in that in that fellowship that you really I don't know stands out for you?
2: I think, I think it's consistent even at the place I am now. It's, it's the people. It's the people you work with. It's the passion that you kind of see and just the drive for people wanting a better community, a better place, a more inclusive place for, for themselves, for their family, for the people that live next to them. That's really what it is. It's, it's that people want to strive for something better. And I think that's always what, what kept me coming back to sustainable CT is that. People are just at least trying to go and do something better. It might ne- not necessarily be written in a, a standard playbook or a guidebook, but everyone finds their own kind of way to do sustainability and, and move the needle forward um, in a way that actualizes on it and that they can see themselves in.
0: I don't know. I shouldn't say I'm shocked, but I'm renewed by that myself every day because as a old marketing guy, I've spent my time enough time selling widgets and doing my thing. It's really refreshing to meet the kind of people I've met all across Connecticut who are living this and believe in this so much. That's, that's very helpful to me to just give me ability to go out and communicate that passion too and believe in it. You know, doing something you actually believe in. What a concept. Let me ask you this. Let's, let's bring it back forward from, you know, the old days and what you might have been doing here as fellows. And I'd like to approach this, uh, Hamza, the, the Lewis Fellowship is designed to examine John Lewis's nonviolent philosophy in social and racial equity, right, uh, from a historical perspective. And, I, and I mention, I'm i mentioning this just as a way to transition back to the future here, current, and ask you, uh, because of that history you had there, that interest you had there, that education you had there um, in that program, I don't want to presume, is racial equity a topic that you would consider to be one of the most important we're facing today? Or is there some, is, you know, climate change the biggie or is it, or is there, you know, political polarization or what is, what is the major issue you see today that we need to confront? Uh,
1: Thank you, Jim, for that question. I, We'll say, I, I think I started at the top saying I, I don't really ever stop talking about agriculture. And so the biggest issue of the day <laughs> is agriculture yeah. and food. It always is. um. But I say that because it really touches on everything else you just mentioned, right? Uh, I got into food policy and agriculture in the first place because it was such a clear and concise way to touch literally anybody, um, you know, if you ask someone, you know, what's your favorite meal? Or what's the meal you remember from your childhood? Or do you remember the first time you like picked a tomato? Or have you ever found a strawberry in the in field? Have you ever like seen a wild blueberry or seen a bird eating one? You know, it's talking about food is something that everyone can relate to, whether it's, you know, what they've grown, what they've eaten, what they remember. So I always try to bring things back to that. And it's because it touches on all these other topics, right? Agriculture is one of the biggest causers of climate related concerns, but it's also really well placed to address it. Um, Political polarization, like we were talking about the Farm Bill earlier, the Farm Bill is so affected by it. And all this legislation is affected by it because... How people agree on different topics and how they want to see the farm system exist is all influenced by the agriculture that we've seen and the agriculture we want to see in the future. And I really appreciate you bringing up racial equity, because when I started in this work, it definitely was important to me. But as I've gone through my career in the past three to four years, it's become a bigger and bigger fixture of my life. And no small part of that is the John Robert Lewis Fellows Program that I'm a part of as well here in Washington, D.C. And what's really fascinating to me is that all the people that I work with in that program are from a variety of different fields in life. You know, some are electrical engineers that are, you know, doing bigger and better things at corporate engineering firms. Some of them are voting rights advocates. Some of them are working in history and trying to become historians. But no matter where we are, racial equity becomes central, because what we recognize is that racial equity has not been at the center for the vast majority of American history, at the very least, let alone world history. So it becomes so critical to center the importance of racial equity in almost every conversation. And I've been lucky to Be exposed to a program like this where I've, you know, gotten to walk on the Edmund Pettus Bridge and listen to John Lewis's voice standing there and saying, wow, if I, if it hadn't been for activists sitting at lunch counters, then what might our food service system look like today? If it hadn't been for people finding the ability to liberate themselves from slavery and to, you know, get past an incredibly exploitative sharecropping system and still find ways to farm and to serve people despite discrimination at, you know, entities like USDA, the US government, then I have such an opportunity to exist in that system. And so what am I doing to support it? And a lot of that has really inspired my work now in data equity in federal uh, food and farm programs. So whether that's understanding how funds are distributed, whether that's looking at a program like Justice 40, an initiative like Justice 40, that is ensuring that 40% of the benefits of climate and environmental related federal investments are going to um, historically disadvantaged communities, communities of color, etc. Um, all of that really plays a role in making sure that the system that we continue to build is equitable and that it's actually serving everyone. Uh, It's becoming especially important now in light of recent Supreme Court rulings where there's questions being called about affirmative action uh, and all of that, right? It just highlights the fact that we're still not on the same page about what racial equity looks like. So making sure that every field we have is making active investments in racial equity and social equity for that matter um, is really, really important. But agriculture does it all. I'll never say anything else than that.
0: <laughs> well, it certainly is. It represents to me a, a confluence of all the other major items we're talking about. There's certainly an energy component, okay, and there's an environmental component. Aside from the fact that we all, it, there's a commonality, a human commonality to agriculture. We all need to eat. There's a, there's an economic, the economic elements to agriculture are obvious, and mostly, especially to. The economic pressure of the stratified economic system that we're in, the haves and the have nots, the larger, the larger farms against the, you know, smaller farms. It all comes together in agricultural policy, agriculture policy. And I can certainly see that there's almost that perfect storm uh, there. Let's take a quick break here. We'll come back tanned, rested, ready for more. We'll return to our program in just a moment. You've been listening to The Impact, a Sustainable CT podcast. Hey, while you're out there tripping the web fantastic, don't forget to join us on Facebook for some fun and interesting stuff. Guaranteed safe for children and pets. Come on, be our friend, won't you? At facebook.com slash ct. Twitter, too, while it lasts. Follow us on twitter.com slash ct. And yes, of course, we're LinkedIn. Search for Sustainable CT from your LinkedIn page, and you'll find us right there being all LinkedIn and media social. And if you're not yet a subscriber to Actions of Impact, the Sustainable CT newsletter, you could be missing out on some very important information to you, to your organization, and to your town. Accept no substitutes. Do yourself a favor and subscribe today. And you can do that where? At sustainablect.org, of course. Let's get back to the program. Chad, tell tell me what you think you view from your perspective in Bridgeport what the major issue of today is, and and it could be local, but also more broadly, what you're thinking of as you know, what your life philosophy would dictate to you know, is the most important thing happening that we need to address.
2: That's a difficult question, Jim. I think I think at the most basic level, it's it's respect for other people's experiences, the challenges, the. Arm the burden that is placed on people, um, the burden people have to carry that isn't always seen by by others. That's certainly one of the biggest challenges in, in Bridgeport is just kind of getting everyone to like move in the same direction and work together, and not necessarily like against each other. Um, because oftentimes, you know, a blight challenge in one neighborhood's the same blight challenge in another neighborhood. The illegal dumping, same thing. But going beyond our borders, you know, it's it's the questions of well, who's, you know, burning waste in in Bridgeport? Who's the ones like, what towns are we supporting with our wastewater treatment plants? Where are those being accounted for? You know, where's the housing being built? Who who's having to house the workers that go support other towns. And that really can be boiled down to just basic respect for other people. And like, what kind of community and world are you building? Um, so i think i think that's the biggest challenge is, is the respect for other people and that just cuz you're different you have for whatever reason people get to this conclusion that you're different in the way you act the way you live and just that kind of respect that you deserve um so i think i think if people move past a lot of those those big ideas of the haves the have nots the people over there the people over here and really just had those honest conversations about what they kind of go through on a daily basis and realize that People in Bridgeport deal with a lot of things that you know people in their worst nightmares wouldn't even dream exist. Um, and I've seen that in my own with my own two eyes. You know the the plants that you know spew toxic pollution in communities, give people headaches, keep people up at night. You go to another town and talk about that, and and they can't even fathom that. Um, I recently attended a talk actually about climate justice a few weeks back um, in in another town, and one of the speaker was talking about trash incineration. One of the big numbers they threw out was um, the neighborhood they grew up in, in Chicago had about 85% of the trash burn. There wasn't from that community. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of sitting back thinking to myself, um, cause I've seen some numbers around it, that the number for Bridgeport's probably more closer to 90%. And I'm kind of sitting there kind of like reading the room, thinking to myself, how are people interpreting this right now? Like when it's not about their community, what's their reaction? when it actually is their community and they have the responsibility and the accountability to do something about it. How does, how does that perception of the issue, that feeling around the issue shift and change? We're talking about housing and where it's located and built. I can't tell you the amount of conversations I had when I was a fellow where, well, we want housing for people like you and people like your co-fellows. Right. But but not those other people. But not those others. Yeah. And it makes you kind of think like, well, what's different about me? Is it because I'm sitting in front of you and you you feel comfortable with me? And is it just because of the way I look even? All of it goes to that just basic respect for people and and realizing that we all have a lot of internal biases and internal challenges based on the the culture and the society we are raised in um, that we need to work through. And that at the end of the day, we, we ask a lot from people who don't have as much um, just to live their lives at the most basic level. Yeah. And and if I could add one more example to that, I was recently um, moderating a panel with Desiree and this incredible planner named Bill. Um, and and one of the, the kind of like running theme of it was about accessibility. And uh, the, the guy Bill talked a lot about how he has to fight oftentimes for basic accessibility and ADA compliance because he lives his life in a wheelchair. And what kind of society are we creating when we put the onus on those individuals to not only just advocate for themselves, but to show up repeatedly at public meetings to show up at, you know, six, seven o'clock at night during a work week when they might have two jobs and their kid needs help with their schoolwork just to get the bare minimum that, that other communities are able to enjoy as a right and without question. And if anyone did question it, you know, you're looked at crazy. We need to start having those conversations that lift all ships and, and have that fundamental respect consistent throughout the conversation. uh, Cause, cause all people want to work all people want a, a healthy safe place for their kids but it becomes really different when people realize that they're contributing to the problem and they shut down yeah you got to have that basic respect and and that'll guide you because if you respect other people you'll do anything to to meet them there and get that kind of kind of system society community built
0: well where does the where does the disrespect come from is it is it ignorance is it self selfishness uh money motives racism combinations there
2: it's probably a combination of all of them i'd say it probably goes to the individual in a lot of cases as to which one they really hit on um but they're all self-reinforcing and and self-harming at the end of the day it's like racism isn't just you know it it's out of ignorance but it has an end agenda like the point of it is to Make money to, you know, create systems that don't benefit certain people and benefit other people. There's always that intentionality behind this stuff. Um, and it may be conscious. It may be unconscious, but there's always an intentionality and a willingness to look the other way over. Oh, well, they don't need to live here or that waste can be burned there because I don't want it in my community. Right. There's always some, I'd say personal benefit, some intentionality behind those feelings, whether they be conscious or unconscious. Um, but that's ingrained in our culture, in our media, in, in just our social systems that exist around us. That's why you got to have that fundamental respect and really do that hard work to uh, unlearn and and figure out what that basic respect looks like. If it's good for you, it's good for someone else, and you should fight for it too.
0: Yeah. It, it almost seems too simple, but a very difficult proposition to get people to really understand and have a sense of personal commitment to empathy. Uh, you know, it seems like it should be a natural thing, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, not to get too biblical about it. But there's, you know, there's, there seems to be that lack of being able to share that sense of empathy. Uh, Desiree, what, what about yourself? How, what do you see as a pressing issue of your time, either, either in, you know, Naugatuck Valley or, or elsewhere in the broader world? What's your, where's your head at these days?
3: Yeah, no, I think that uh, is a great question. And, and I agree with Chad and Hamza and, and saying that, um, you know, these are all pretty compelling and, and pressing issues. And I think that they kind of touched upon what immediately jumps to my mind, which is talking about, um, you know, what's consistent across these topics is that inequity that exists. And I think that, um, you know, me working at a regional level, being on the inside, having the ability to see that it really does touch upon every single one of these topics and, um, you know, is at the center and should be the through line of all of these topics. And so I think that coming out of the pandemic was when, I, you know, everybody's eyes were open and we were saying a lot of the disparities and inequities that existed. Um, and, you know, we're just at a place that we're seeing that anything you talk about, whether it's, uh, like Chad said, climate pollution, or you're talking about, um, agriculture, food, access to food, you're talking about access to transportation, housing, all these issues, um, are really touched by, or should be touched by equity, but are touched by inequities that that exist or persist. And um, I think that another part of that and an important thing and that issue that needs to be tackled is that when you're seeing the needle move so slowly on some of these issues, as it is in the realm of work that we all do, um, sometimes that could see distrust from the public But you know, distrust with the government or um, put a strain on the relationship with the public and the government, because they're not seeing immediate action. They're not seeing, you know, the slow work and the slow needle move on the back end of things. Um And really that's not as conducive to the work that we do. You know, we need it to be our work to be effective. We need to see that effectiveness built through that relationship. And it really, that relationship is how we should or do make quality decisions. And so I think that, uh, you know, with these persisting issues, these are some of the things that are happening, and and really one thing that we have to tackle is trying to rebuild those relationships.
0: Yeah, this, folks, when you're looking at the generation coming up behind you, because you're all so young, to my my perspective, and when you're looking at your young your nieces, your nephews, or you know whoever's coming up behind you, uh, what advice? What do you wish for them? What advice would you give them, and how they should? approach some of these issues? Or for that matter, if they're coming up, if you have somebody looking for fellowships or we're closer in age, uh, any advice about what they should be trying to do in terms of their career or passions? Hamza, can you address that?
1: Yeah, it's a big question. I I think I'd kind of answer it in two parts. One is, you know, particularly on the professional end, if you're looking for something you know, your, your next big inspiring workplace or whatever, you know, if you're going to have a reality TV show for it and, and the next big thing that's going to change your life. I think the most important thing you can do is talk to people. Um, if you're interested in something and you see someone doing it, it's not being afraid to send an email, get a phone number, and just follow up and build a relationship with people that, you know, are doing the things that you're interested in. So many of... The opportunities that I've had and so many of the groups that I've gotten to be a part of were things that came out of relationships that I built from going to a conference and seeing someone who I really loved when they spoke and saying, oh, there's their email at the end of their PowerPoint, actually taking that seriously and sending an email saying like, I saw you at this thing. I was really interested. This was great. I'd love to talk to you more. And then things just build from there. You know, I got to Sustainable CT because I had honestly been struggling to find a job for a really long time and was just trying to get involved with things. I got to meet with someone who was working on sustainability work at Yale who had a newsletter that he sent out to students. And I asked if I could be included, even though I wasn't a student and the Sustainable CT Fellowship was advertised as a professional opportunity, and it got me here. And then staying involved with Sustainable CT has continued to allow me to build my professional network. And it's been a really valuable way to find opportunities and engage in the work that I've been really passionate about and to learn about things that I hadn't heard of and now that I'm passionate about. So um, it's truly mastering your networking craft, um, not to use all the buzzwords, but uh, it, it really does go a long way. Um, as long as you're being really genuine about it, right? It's not all transactional. It's not, I want to build these relationships to get a job. It's got to come from a genuine place of learning and interest. And if you're going at it from that kind of attitude, the, the rewards are out, like innumerable, uh, the other kind of piece of it, just in general, like finding your next steps, where are you going? Not necessarily professional, but anywhere advice I'd give is to always recognize that your voice is valuable. Um, the number of workplaces I've been in where I've been hesitant to say something, um, but then decided to and realized that someone was really willing to listen and said, like, oh, wow, that was great. Thank you for speaking up. Or, wow, I wouldn't have thought of it that way. Or that's great perspective. But actually, from my experience, this is what we've seen in the past. Whether you're learning something new by asking you a question, whether you're bringing the new perspective by saying what you know from your experience, whatever it may be, speaking up will not only show that you care, it'll show that, that you're ready to invest and that you are ready to bring something to the table. Yeah. And that is invaluable. People will always recognize initiative. So making sure that you hone your own voice and use it is like the number one piece of advice I could give to anyone.
0: Yeah, I've always found, especially what I try to tell my kids is, you know, having courage is hard. But it's really important because you got like because what's the worst what's the worst thing that could happen? Somebody will tell you no. and that does happen. You know, some people are jerks. <laughs> you know, there are jerks in the world. And that's another lesson you kind of have to live with. But to be open and to be courageous and to be engaging is is really half the battle because that way it's a way to learn, you know, the way to show interest, a way to show uh love for concepts ideas and other people is just to have a little more more courage and, and reach out chad what about yourself you got any you got any good uh advice for the fellows coming up behind
2: you i would say just don't don't think too seriously about where you're gonna end up in your 20s really okay i think like i've i've had the conversation with myself more times than i can count at this point of is this the career career path? Should I be somewhere else? Where am I supposed to be? Am I far enough? Am I not far enough? Like, just just take the ride. You know, I gotta remind myself. <laughs> just just be comfortable where you're at. This time is is your time to explore and figure out what works for you and what doesn't. Just be okay with with the process.
1: Yeah,
2: and that that thing will find you at when it when it needs to, and you'll you'll find it. But. Asking yourself all the time if you're in the right place at the right time is is an endless battle, um, and you're never going to really know until you get to the end of that journey. So, letting the journey just play out is is probably the best advice I can give. Yeah, enjoy the ride. It's yeah. really what's about more than the destination, and be in the moment.
0: I mean, it you know, enjoy it and and take as much of it from what as you can.
2: And so- if I could build on a little bit of what Hamza said too, <laughs> it's be that courageous, like be in the moment and. Do what you need to do. Like yeah. don't don't take every moment as the end all be all. Take it as the the next step, the next battle to to that end goal.
0: That's interesting. So because I was when I was trying to think of things I really wanted to ask you folks, and some of this is personally motivated. I'm, you know, I'm getting close to my retirement. I've been through a lot of stuff, been where you are <laughs> years ago, kind of went through all this. And I just I'm very interested to know the mentality, the philosophy, the approach to uh, life and politics and, and uh, where we're at from your generation. And Desiree, what would what would you say, you know, following up on something that Chad has been saying, you say, well, where do I expect to be in 20 years? Where do I look to be in 20, 30 years? Do you have a concept? Do you care?
3: Yeah. So I think um – and, and I can't speak for my generation I can only speak for myself, but it definitely probably hmm. looked a little bit different than, um, those who perceived me or came before me where, you know, it was, you know, what is my next move? What is my next thing? Or am I going to be in 10, 20, 50 years, God willing. Um, but I think that, you know, I have an idea. I think that I've been fortunate to have a lot of the opportunities that have led me where I am. I've been able to work local government, regional government. And, um, am passionate about making the connection and bridging the connection with people on the public level, but I think those next steps down the line, if I'm still here in Connecticut, will probably lend itself to a legislative career, um, and may see myself on the on the hill, you know, corresponding with Hamza someday.
1: <laughs>
3: but but as far as you know, what what Chad just said about kind of enjoying the journey and and not. Um, you know, confining yourself to, to spaces, you know, definitely being present where you are and and trying to, um, not so much seek to that next step, but to make sure that you're taking this step and you're fully committing to this step and, and that you're, um, you know, giving it your all. I think that's where I'm at right now is making sure that where I am, I'm giving it my all. I think that in my, course, a lot of people's young adulthood and early career, you're trying to find your footing. And sometimes you feel like a guest or a visitor to a lot of the spaces that you're occupying. And so now it's transitioning from I'm no longer a visitor. This is now my house. (laughs) And so we're gonna, yeah, we're just gonna do the, the best that we can do. And then, like I said, hopefully, moving forward, you'll see me doing the best that I can do on a greater scale really making some of those decisions as to how we're allocating funds and how we're um you know enacting laws that that affect people and and the public welfare and the environment and all those things.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much for being here. It is really nice to see you folks make it. You may you're you're doing great things to this small degree that Sustainable CT has helped you along in that journey. You know, we're we're very proud and happy to have been a part of that. So thank you for being here and sharing your, yourselves with, uh, with me and with us. I really do appreciate it. Thank you.
3: Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thank you. We right. you hope you've enjoyed today's edition of the Impact, a sustainable CT podcast. If you're a Connecticut resident who is going to college just about anywhere, or maybe you're from just about anywhere attending a college or university in Connecticut, or you know someone who is, give in to the inspiration these talented and accomplished people instill, and, and heavens, they do inspire, don't they? And you'll want to find out more about the Sustainable CT Fellowship Program for 2024. And you can do that by contacting the fabulous Jess LeClaire at jessical.sustainablect.org. As always, this program is recorded, produced, and copyrighted, yeah, by Sustainable CT. Thank you for your interest. Thank you for listening. Thank you to our sponsor, the Connecticut Foundation of Eastern Connecticut, Thanks again to the inspiring Chad Schroeder, Desiree Blanchard, and Hamza Ganapati for joining us in Keeping It Real. And thanks to everyone for taking local actions that have a statewide impact.